good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. Uh, Pastor Lawson this morning is in Canton, Mississippi, uh, preparing to, uh, to uh, officiate Johnny Taylor's wedding, and so we're, we're joyous with Johnny uh, and, and happy for them today. So that's where he is this morning. If you have a Bible this morning, if you would go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12. We're going to read this morning verses 9 through 21. 9 through 21. So we'll read, we'll start in verse 9 and we'll read 9 to 21. If you, once you get there in your Bible, Romans chapter 12, verse 9, I ask that you would stand in honor of God's word. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. We believe that these words were given by inspiration of God and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Lord, whom have we in heaven but you? To whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Therefore, we now come to your word, seeking these words of eternal life. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us a mind to understand, give us a heart to believe, give us a spirit to obey. Guide us with your counsel, O Lord. And this morning we pray that the preaching of your word would be accompanied by the power of your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we have found ourselves in this second half of chapter 12, verse 9 of Romans. Last week, Lawson walked us through what it meant to let love be genuine, and we really find the second half of that exhortation in what we see next, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And we've really taken this portion of Romans, we've come out of Romans 1 through 11, where we've, we've seen these, these robust reminders of the theology that we believe of Christ and who he is and what he's done and, and the, the price that was paid for our salvation. And we've come out of this, this glorious gospel that's been on display in Romans 1 through 11, and, and Paul begins to tell us what it looks like to live that gospel out in the church. And so last week, we looked at what it meant for us to love one another genuinely without hypocrisy. And this morning, we have the opportunity to, again, apply what it means to love genuinely in how we abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And I'm well aware that when you hear the words good and evil, you might have been conditioned by the, the postmodern culture that we live in to think of those things in an ethereal sense, something far away, something that's, that's merely conceptual. But what we understand from the scriptures is that good and evil are objective. They're, they're true. They're real that they're set, that what God says is good is in fact good, and that what God says is evil is in fact evil, and that there, there are things that, that do not change. And you've come, no doubt, this morning in your mind with categories already built out, determining what is good and 
what is evil. And this morning, I, I desire that as we look into the Scriptures, what we'll, what we'll see is, is, is really the bottom of these things. What does it truly mean when something is evil? And what does it truly mean when something is good? And therefore, what does it truly mean to abhor that evil and to hold fast to that good? This morning, as we approach the second half of this verse that has already told us to let love be genuine, what I want to communicate very clearly from the outset is that what Paul is arguing for and what I think the, the testimony of the Scriptures argues for is this, is this fact, is that, is that true, genuine love always abhors or hates something. And that might be jarring to you, and that might feel strange of me to say at the outset, but for every love, there is a reciprocal hatred. There has to be, right? When we love, the fact that we love children means that we hate child abuse and we hate abortion. The fact that we love the brotherhood means that we hate sin and that we, we hate uh, dissension. The fact that we love things means that, that on the other side of that love, that there has to be a reciprocal hatred for something. While this might be obvious to some of you, I think we live in a world where the idea of love just means simply always affirming, never judging, and all the while ignoring our Bibles that says God is love but also that there are things that God hates. So this morning, I want to make sure that we are, we are clear in the Scriptures about what genuine love does. And I think Paul is very clear to say that genuine love does two things. Genuine love abhors what is evil, and genuine love holds fast to what is good. And so that's our, our direction this morning. I was reading a, a book a couple weeks ago. There's a, a book that I read every year. It's called What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. And he, he says this statement in that book, and it, it stuck with me for as long as I've read the book. And it says, no, nobody wants a God who declines to deal with evil. They just want a God who declines to deal with their evil. And I think this morning, the crux of where we stand is that genuine love deals decisively with evil. And it holds fast decisively with good. And so we turn our, text, our attention to our text this morning. Literally, that's all our text says. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And so if you're taking notes this morning, there's really just two, if you want to call them two buckets that, that the thoughts will land in. And the first bucket is that genuine love abhors evil, and the second is that genuine love holds fast to what is good. Because the reality is your love cannot be genuine, your love will not be genuine unless it hates what is evil. And so when Paul here says, abhor what is evil, I want us to, to first spend some time defining what he means. So first, define what does it mean to abhor evil? This word abhor, this is the only time in the New Testament that it's, word, that it's used. It's a compound word between uh, the word for hatred and the word for to run away from or to flee. And it's the idea, truly, of hating something so much that your visceral response is literally to back away from it, to run away from it. I think of, to be honest, when I see a snake in my yard, right? When I see a snake in my yard, the, the first thought that I have is, and I know people are saying there's good snakes out there in your mind. Don't judge me. I'm just saying, when I see a snake, my first response is not to go up near it and pet it. It's to run away because I hate snakes. I know I'm not supposed to, but I do. And so to abhor is to, is to hate to, to such a, a degree, this, this, this degree of intense dislike to have this visceral response of running away. And he says genuine love abhors, hates to this degree that, that you flee from it, that you run away in disgust, that you back away. He says genuine love does that toward evil. Well, then we have to understand if, it, if, if genuine love abhors evil and we want to be the people who back away intensely from, from hatred of, of evil, then we need to know what evil is. And the word used here for evil literally means evil. It's, it's not very complicated. It just means evil, wicked, or bad. 
But I think the scriptures give us a, a helpful understanding of what the word evil means and what it entails. And so if you look at this word evil and you see all of the ways that it's used in the New Testament, the, the New Testament uses this word to discuss several things. First, it uses this word to discuss the world. So in Galatians 1.4, Paul says he calls the world this present evil age. So he uses this word to, to discuss the world and the things in the world. But not only the world, he uses it to discuss who we were. Colossians 1.21, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Ethically evil, wicked, bad. So he uses it to discuss the world. He uses it to discuss who we were. He uses it to discuss false teachers within the church. He says that false teachers within the church in 1 Timothy 6, quote, cause evil suspicions. But most often in the scriptures, when we see this word evil used, it's to describe literally the evil one, Satan and his demons. We see it throughout 1 John. We see it throughout the Gospels. Satan is called the evil one, the one who embodies evil, wickedness. And so the scriptures are clear to us that what Paul is telling us, commanding us to abhor, to hate, to hate so much that we back away from, is this evil, this evil that is, is defined in, in what the world is like and who we once were and the false teachers and what they do to the church and, and Satan and his demons. But the scriptures, I think, give us a further definition of what, in fact, is evil. We know from the scriptures, from the Psalms and from Mark and all throughout the scriptures that the Lord is defined as good. So if you follow me here logically, at the very least, we, we would understand that anything that God hates is evil. Thankfully, the scriptures have given us several lists of things that God hates. Psalm 5, 4 and 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Psalm 101, 4-8, a perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Proverbs 6, 16 and following, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Colossians 3 would say, put to death what is earthly in you. We said the earth has been described as evil. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, idolatry. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. James 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We could go on throughout. The scriptures have been exceptionally clear that there are things that God hates. But I don't think that's a full enough definition of evil. Because to merely go the opposite of God to the things that he hates, I think gives us a, a clear picture of some things that are evil, but what we understand in, in God's word is that God has a standard, and the standard is perfection. And based off of his perfect standard, Matthew 5.48 says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we would understand that evil is anything that does not meet God's perfect standard. It's why Isaiah would say in Isaiah 64, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. It's why John would say in 1 John, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him because what we understand from the scriptures is that it's not merely the, 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 bad, the things that we in our natural minds consider the worst of the worst but that evil is anything that doesn't reach God's standard. And thus what we understand is that there's an intrinsic link between evil and sin. 
And when we think about sin, I, I think that John Piper has the, the best definition of sin that I've ever read. And he says, what is sin? It's the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. When we look at that list, and we say, yeah, I can think of 10 of those that I've done this week. But we often don't think of them as evil. We think of them as forgetfulness or, or just messing up. Ralph Venning in the sinfulness of sin said, sin is the quintessence of evil. It has made all the evils that there are and is itself worse than the evils it has made. It is so evil that it is impossible to make it good or lovely by all the arts that can be used. This is evil. And Paul says that to love genuinely that we hate so much that we would back away in disgust, we hate this evil. To love genuinely, we hate all that God calls evil and wickedness with such a passion that our first response is literally to be revolted and to flee from it. And we hate it not merely in its outward manifestations, but in its inward thoughts and in its inward feelings and in its words and then in its action. And what we understand from the scriptures is that the fear of the Lord, Proverbs says, is the hatred of evil. Paul has in mind here, I think, that when we let love be genuine, what we start by doing is understanding and having a proper view of who God is. And when we have a proper view of who God is and His goodness and in His holiness and, and who He is, then we will have a proper view of evil itself. Because we cannot abhor evil. We will not abhor evil unless we understand who evil is against. And so we understand what it means to abhor evil. It means to, to hate so much that we back away from it. But the question might be, why ought we abhor evil? Paul doesn't really give a reason here other than to say, let love be genuine. He says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. So why ought we to abhor what is evil? I can think of several reasons that we abhor what is evil. First, we abhor what is evil because of what it is. It's an offense to a holy God. We could start in Genesis. And we could walk through and see all of the ways in which God takes evil seriously. We could think about the way that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. About how God destroyed the earth with a flood because of the sinfulness of a generation. How the people's language was confused at the Tower of Babel. We could think about Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed. We could think about Egypt and, and many of, of its inhabitants being destroyed. We could think about the prophets of Baal being slaughtered. We could talk about Canaanite nations that were wiped off the face of the earth. We could talk about David and how the Lord dealt with him after his sin with, with Bathsheba. We could talk about in Luke 16 how this rich man is, is begging for just a, a drop of water on his tongue as he is experiencing the proper recompense for his sin. We could think about how the church dealt with Ananias and Sapphira and how the Lord struck them down. We could think about the final judgment and, and think about that day when all evil will be wiped off the face of the earth in judgment. We abhor evil because of what it is. Because our holy God abhors evil. But not only that, because... It is, in a sense, what put our Savior on the cross. When we read verses like, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His, his wounds we are healed. We, we so quickly just roll over this part that says it was our transgressions. And it was our iniquities. And we are healed, healed by His wounds. The good news of the gospel causes us first to understand that it is our sin that is so heinous to a holy God that someone had to die to atone for it. You think about this sacrificial system in the Old Testament, all that blood and all that slaughter is shouting, evil is costly. Evil leads to death. 
We see evil and we abhor it because of what it is. But not only because of what it is, but also because of what it does. We abhor evil because of the effect that it has on ourselves and on our brothers. I mean, do you remember who you were? Do you remember who you were before you were in Christ? And the weight of evil on you. Do you remember what sin left unrepented of feels like? David describes it in Psalm 32. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Evil affects us. Evil not only affects us, it affects our brothers and sisters. When we think of our own sin, we're, we're often tempted to think that our sin is, is strictly only affecting us. That it's a sin against God, which it is first and foremost, and that it's only affecting us. But it, it affects so much more than us. We think of the sin of Achan in the Old Testament, how it affected his entire family. And that as we sin and as we, as we do not abhor evil, it's affecting our entire fellowship. Even in our own lives, you, you can probably remember a time, or, or maybe you feel this now, where because you are, you are not abhorring evil and you're, and you're living with it as if it's okay, you turn inward. You flee fellowship so that no one will find out. You hide. And when you do those things, the body suffers. Because we have come together to encourage one another. It is grace to your brothers and sisters, not only to, to be admonished and to be encouraged and to be exhorted, but to be able to admonish and encourage and exhort. Evil affects ourselves and it affects our brothers and sisters. But we also abhor evil because of where it leads. Galatians 5.21 says, Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Evil ends in destruction. It must be destroyed. And at this moment, I, I really want to just to pause and to plead with you. Because in my study this week, as I'm looking at what it means to be evil, and how heinous evil is, and how gross, and how awful it truly is, and what it means to abhor evil, I want to I pause here and give you just the glimmer of hope that I had in my study of this, of this abhorring of evil. I just want to plead with you for a moment that the question is, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? You're a temple of the living God. And this is what's amazing about this. Paul commanded it because we can do it if we're in Christ. If, if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is actually gone. The new actually has come. You have been given freedom to abhor what is evil. You can do it. Apart from Christ, you loved what was evil. But in Christ, you can abhor what is evil. You can actually obey him. And you can live in that freedom to abhor what is evil. For the sake of God's glory and for the sake of your own soul, you can actually abhor what is evil. For the sake of the brothers and sisters sitting right next to you, and you can abhor what is evil as a testimony to the world around you. You can do it. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil? And you might be like, you've said this phrase so many times, abhor what is evil. What does that look like? I think I've placed it in really three categories in my mind, what it means and what it looks like to abhor evil. And I want to I kind of build out from that. So first, I want to look at what it means to abhor evil in ourselves, and then what it means to abhor evil in the body, and then what it means to abhor evil in the world. Because I think our temptation, when we read a list of evil things, our first temptation is to think about what we saw on Facebook about our non-Christian friends and what they were posting about what they were enjoying. That our, our first temptation when we think about evil is to think outside of ourselves. But what I, what I, what I think is, is, is most vital here for us to understand is that we abhor the evil that is left in us. To abhor evil is not merely to complain about the evil around us, but to make war with the evil within us. 
Many of us stop here at complaining about the evil around us, and it's easy to do, right? We can look at the world, and we can look at all of the evil and say, look at all of the evil that's going on around us. But I think first we see that we should abhor the evil in ourselves. What does that mean? Well, to abhor evil is to take decisive action against against it. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 18. He says, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. You could fill in whatever there, pride, greed, envy, hatred. If it causes you to sin, take decisive action against it. Don't hold on to it. Don't leave it alone, but take decisive action against it. Many preachers have termed this the the concept of us making war. Ephesians 6 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of of evil in the heavenly places. John Piper calls it a mean streak in Christianity. That our mean streak in Christianity isn't, isn't merely against or isn't really against other people at all. Our mean streak in Christianity is against the sin that wages war on our own hearts. And we fight to put it to death. We make war against that sin. And we, we not only fight to put it to death, but we fight to put it to death at the root. Is there a sin that clings closely? One you haven't taken a militaristic approach to? And I plead with you to make war with it because pet sins grow up and they devour you. The the evil that we are to abhor starts in us. And I pray that we would gasp at how atrocious sin is at the heart level. It's so easy to hate the outward, the flamboyant sins. It almost feels natural to look at our world and we're in the midst of it now to see our world celebrating sin and to say that's evil. But Christ would have us look at the heart and say it starts evil at the root. That that's merely an outward expression of the evil that that is already inside. As Jude 23 would say, that we hate even the garment stained by the flesh. As James would say, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This evil doesn't start in the hands, it starts in the heart. Matthew 5, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said of those of all, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I would venture to assume that Many of our problems with making war with sin is that we, we find it difficult because we're, we're just dealing with the outward, the actions. And Jesus says, sin isn't merely an action, it's a heart condition. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but if you've lusted in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You've heard it said that you shouldn't murder, but if you've had anger in your heart toward your brother, you've already murdered. We abhor evil at the heart level, at the root. We gasp at how atrocious even sin is at the heart. But not only do we abhor evil in ourselves, and I think that's the first, if we're thinking about concentric circles, it's, it's, it's vital for us to understand that we abhor the evil in ourselves. But I think also he has in mind here that we abhor the evil in our brothers and sisters. And, and just me saying that, because of our, our preconceived notions about the word abhor and evil, our, our thought is that like someone's going to come up to you and just beat you over the head with a Bible and just say, stop doing that. But the scripture has actually given us a way to abhor evil in one another. In Matthew 18, Jesus walks it through. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take two 
uh, one or two others along with you that every change, every charge might be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You can pair that with Luke 17 where he says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. How do we abhor the evil in our brothers and sisters? We abhor the evil in our brothers and sisters by aiming and longing and working for restoration and reconciliation. We abhor the evil in us and in our brothers and sisters by, be, by being committed to exhorting them, to taking the scriptures to them, to pleading with them, brother, sister, you, you are in sin. Please repent. Please come back. Paul says in Galatians 6, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We believe in church discipline at this church because we believe that love should be genuine. And that if we genuinely love one another, then we are genuinely willing and ready to admonish one another in the Scriptures. And not only to admonish, but to forgive. And not only to admonish and to forgive, but to bear one another's burdens. We abhor the evil in our brothers and sisters by longing and acting for restoration and reconciliation. If we abhor the evil in ourselves and we go out to the second circle, we abhor the evil in our brothers and sisters and then finally we abhor the evil in the world. Because we love Christ and because we love the brothers, we want the world to know Christ. We abhor the evil in the world. I think about 1 Peter 3 where Peter says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I love this because when we abhor the evil in the world, it it rids us, it frees us from any fear of man that would say, well, what will they think of me if I stand up for this truth? If I actually live like I believe that what God has said is good is good and what God has said is evil is evil, it frees us, it rids us of that fear of man. But not only does it do that, what we see when we when we abhor the evil in the world, we don't abhor the evil in the world with simply this dismissive attitude of saying, well, just burn it all down. Because you know what? We were the evil in the world. We were the evil in the world. And we, we look to the scriptures and we say, we, we see this evil in the world and we say, the Lord, redeem it. Call them to yourselves. Make it right. And for those who don't, for those who are happy in the death and sin that they live in, we trust that in the end, perfect justice will be done. That perfect justice is applied to all of those who are in Christ at the cross and at the end of the age, that all evil will be, in fact, dealt with. And so if we love genuinely, that, genuinely, that means that we abhor evil. But what I hope that you're thinking right now is, wow, that is, that's really incomplete. That's just half of it. Because we don't merely abhor evil. And we don't really understand how to abhor evil unless we hold fast to what is good. But we don't really understand what it means to abhor evil unless we hold fast to what is good. Paul doesn't merely stop the command to abhor what is evil. He, com- he continues and commands, hold fast to what is good. Because I'm convinced that the only way to truly hate 
evil. The only way to truly abhor evil at the root, the only way to, to truly hate it so much that you would run away from it is to be enamored with the good. It's to, it's to stare at the good and find in it the most beauty that you have ever seen. Because I'm convinced that if you merely try to abhor the evil, if you merely try to make a list of all of the things that you should hate, then you'll just always be going back to that list and being like, I gotta hate that, I gotta hate that, I gotta hate that. It'll always be incomplete. I'm convinced here that Paul says we abhor evil and with that semicolon, we hold fast to what is good. Genuine love holds fast to what is good. So this is our second bucket that we're going to throw some thoughts in. Your love cannot be genuine unless it holds fast to what is good. Now, I love uh, in our English translations we have here, maybe you don't if you're not reading that ESV, you may have something else, but we have a semicolon. And I love semicolons. You know why I love semicolons? Because semicolons do the work of kind of a period and kind of a comma. And what they do is they take two clauses. If you don't know, I'm an English teacher. I love this. They take two clauses and they put two clauses that make sense together, together. It wouldn't make sense for you to put a clause that's talking about one thing and a clause that's talking about another thing and put them together with a semicolon. That would be bad grammar because semicolons connect two clauses that have something in common that are talking about the same thing. And what we see here in abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good is really just two sides of the same coin. Two clauses that are discussing the same thing. So what does it look like to hold fast to what is good? Well, if we were to define what it means to hold fast to what is good, the word hold fast literally means, it comes from the word to mean glued together. It's the same word that we see in the New Testament used to talk about a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast or cleaving to his wife. It's the same word here. It means glued. It means to join together, to have an intimate connection, to be glued, to hold fast, to not be able to, to be separated. And he says here, he says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what? Hold fast to what is good. It's the same word used in, in verse 2 where he says that the will of God, he says, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And you might ask the question, well, what, when we think about good, we've looked at the opposite of good, the opposite of God, the, the, the things that God hates, the things that don't meet God's standard. Well, what is good? God has defined good for us in himself. We do no good without evil. God is good. He is the pinnacle of goodness. Jesus asked the rich young ruler, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. The scriptures are full of exhortations to give thanks to God, to give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. To taste and see that the Lord is good. That the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, that he knows those who take refuge in him. How is it that God could call creation good other than because he made it? That it came from him? We understand that Christ has made that goodness known in human form. I love the verse Philippians 4.8. And I remember coming across it maybe even 10 years ago and I was reading it and I was thinking, how many things? I'll just read it first. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And I remember thinking to myself, what a list. How many things are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise? And then it dawned on me. I remember where I was sitting like 10-ish years ago, and I remember thinking, this isn't a list that Paul wants us to memorize. He's saying, stare at Jesus. He's saying, look to Christ. We see each of these things personified in him. Is he not truth embodied? Has he ever uttered a falsehood? Is he not completely honorable? Will he not receive all glory, praise, and honor on the day of his return? Is he not perfectly just? 
Is he not completely pure, the lamb without blemish? Did he not become the perfect sacrifice for his people? Is he not lovely? Has there ever been one so lovely? Is he not the most commendable? Did he not lay down his life for his friends? Is he not excellent? Did he not accomplish all righteousness on our behalf and present a more excellent sacrifice, one that afforded him the ability not to stand daily at his service, but to sit down at the right hand of the Father? Is he not worthy of praise? Who is worthy to open the scroll? For whom will every knee bow and every tongue confess? Who do angels sing their praises to? Is this verse not speaking of Christ? And we have in this verse a definition of good. Christ has made his goodness known. If you want to know what good is, and as we've heard for the past several, several weeks, look to the source. Look to the fountainhead of all good. Is it not Christ himself who, who has defined for us what good is in himself? We hold fast to that good. We are glued to that good. Paul says it's only halfway. It's only halfway to, to abhor the evil. He says you really only abhor the evil when you hold fast to the good. When you're glued to Christ. And so we ask the question, well, why, why do we hold fast to what is good? We hold fast to what is good because of who Christ is. The writer of Hebrews would say that he is the heir of all things, that he is who, through whom God created the world, that he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, that after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, that he's superior to angels. He would say further down in Hebrews, but of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, un of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. He's the one who has done it perfectly. We, we hold fast to Christ because of who he is, but we hold fast to Christ because of what he has done. And again, this is where this has become a cliche here, but, but this is where reading this, this letter in completion in one sitting would, would help us. This, this verse, these words come directly after this long exposition of the gospel of Christ, of the glory of Christ in the gospel. We've heard for 11 chapters of who Christ is and of what he's done. And then we hear, hold fast to what is good. Well, in your mind, what else could be more good than this, this glorious gospel that's been on display for the first 11 chapters? He is good. Just to remind you of a few things that we've heard, that he's justified us by his grace as a gift that he's provided us peace with God, that he's given us access to faith in his grace, that he's reconciled us to God, that he's given us eternal life, that he's made us dead to sin and alive to God, that he's crucified us with Christ, that he has set us free from sin, that he's sanctifying us, that he's caused us to serve in the new way of the Spirit, that he's swallowed up all of our condemnation, that he's placed us in the Spirit and we now have the Spirit in us, that he's called us sons, not merely slaves, that he's called us fellow heirs with Christ, that he's promised that all things work together for our good, that he's secured our salvation in his own work, that he has known us since before the foundation of the world and is creating one unified people in himself. And we think about all that Christ has done, that we who are dead in our sins have been brought to life. He is good. And just as the opposite of evil, just as evil would lead us to destruction, Christ leads us to glory. We are being, as Paul says, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is good in all that he is. And good doesn't even feel like strong enough of a word. And you might be asking finally as we close, what does it look like to hold fast to this good? What does it look like to be glued to Christ? And I'm tempted to 
give you a list of things, but there's not really a list. What does it look like to be glued to Christ? We've heard it last week. It means that we stare at Him. That we stare at Him. We look to Christ who is the ultimate good. Just as we read in, in Isaiah this morning, that we, we understand that you, you become what you behold. Right? As Isaiah, has, Isaiah says that you, you look to an idol, you'll become worthless like an idol. But we look to Christ. And what is he doing? He is transforming us from one degree of glory to another. We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we look at him and we say, he is quintessentially glory and goodness. We stare at him. And I guarantee that you will abhor evil more by looking to the ultimate good than by making a list of things to hate. We put on not only looking to Christ, we put on the good works that he has commanded. When we look to him, what happens? We're changed. So just like Paul says in, in Colossians 3 that we take off all of these things that are worldly in us, he says we not only take those things off, but we put on. What do we put on? We put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. We bear with one another. We forgive one another. We put on love, which binds all of those things together in perfect harmony. We let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. We're thankful. We let the word dwell in us richly. We teach and we admonish one another in wisdom. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we, in whatever we do, in word or deed, we give thanks to God the Father through Christ. When we stare at the ultimate good, we will become what we behold, we will be transformed into his image. And here's what I love about what we understand from the testimony of the scriptures is that this good that we stare out, when we stare at Christ, when we, when we are enamored with the beauty and the glory of Christ, what, we, what happens is we are being transformed into his image is that we do that in fellowship with the good people that he has created. Yeah. That this is not you walk out that door and you figure it out in your own living room at your own house. This is the, the, the design of God is that we do this in fellowship with the church. He has created a good people for himself. And he calls us good because he's the one who has the power to do that by the death of Christ. And we look to the church and we, we are encouraged when we understand that, that the person sitting next to you has the same worth that you do because they're created by God. And the person sitting next to you has the same identity that you do, that no matter who they were, who they are, is that they are in Christ and you are a brother and you are a sister. That you have the same identity, but not only do you have the same identity, you get to look and when you live in fellowship, you get to see the Lord change them and make them like him and can conform them to his image. And you get to sit across the table and you get to say, look at the, the glory of the gospel on display. That two years ago, you were a pagan and you hated God and you hated his people. And look what he's done in you. And you look and you glory together and you stare at the sun together with, with fellowship with one another. Do not miss the power of living in close community. Don't miss it. You will not abhor evil. You will not hold fast to what is good unless you're holding fast to one another. And we do that in so many different ways. Anytime that I get the opportunity to talk to any other body of believers, I, I make it a point to talk about the sweetness that I experience when we take the table together. To think about the ways that God has ordained in his goodness, the ordinances to remind us of our ultimate good. To watch someone come out of the waters and, 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 and symbolize that they're becoming one of us to come to the same table and to look each other in the eye, to, to recognize that we are family, that we are blood-bought sinners together. He's given us these things to remind us of our ultimate good. 
But there does come a point where we walk outside. As a body, living in fellowship with one another, we walk into the world. And we have the opportunity to spread the goodness of our God, to display the goodness of our God to a world that hates it. 1 Peter 2 says that we, we are actually sojourners and exiles, and we abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our soul. Why? So we keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they'll see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That we, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, are spreading through Christ the, the, the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That among those who are being saved, our fragrance is sweet. And among those who are perishing, it is death. And there's no other way to encourage you, I don't think, that would be as helpful as saying this, and we'll close. I want to say congratulations. You get to do this forever. But not in the same way. You get to abhor evil and hold fast to what is good until that day when there's no more evil to abhor. Until that day that what is good we see face to face. And on that day, we will from then on until eternity, into eternity, we will together hold fast to what is good and joy because we will see him face to face and he will be our God and we will be his people and all our tears will be wiped away and all the evil will be punished and dealt with and there will be no barrier between him and us and we will enjoy him forever. And when we look at that, we look to Christ who is the ultimate good. Can we not hate so much more easily what is evil. What is evil in us and in our brothers and sisters and in the world. Until the day where there's nothing left to abhor. We, and when we see the ultimate good face to face, we labor, we continue to abhor what is evil, to hold fast to what is good. And how do we do it? By staring at the ultimate good. Let's pray. Mm-hmm.